And if we can, if we can convince ourselves, if we can see it in the data, if we can, if we can ask the customer and ask them how they feel and, and get validation that yes, we're in fact creating delight, it's counterintuitive. Maybe it was a bit more friction. Uh, maybe it's, you know, different to what everyone else is doing, but if we can see that we're creating delight, that is, uh, at the end of the day, that's our values North star. You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industry. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, I'm with Gorov Vora from Superhuman. Gorov is the head of strategy, analytics, and business operations at Superhuman, which is the fastest email experience in the world. With $126 million in total funding from investors that include Andreessen Horowitz, First Round Capital and IVP, Superhuman has helped customers send more than 100 million messages and collectively save tens of millions of hours. In his current role, Gorov leads three core areas, strategy, analytics, and business ops. Previously, he was the head of growth at Superhuman, where he led growth and analytics, marketing, and customer onboarding teams to scale company revenue, hire new recruits across all roles and levels, and launch marketing channels from scratch. Prior to joining Superhuman, Gorov was the lab's associate at the management consulting firm Oliver Wyman, and he holds an MA in economics from the University of Cambridge. All right. So welcome to the show, Gorov. Awesome. Thank you so much, Paris. I'm really glad to be here. Same here. Same here. <clears throat> so you have had quite an experience at Superhuman, and I want to start with that. I think that you've been there now, it looks like for a little over seven years. Is that right? I think I'm coming up on six and a half. My exact start oh, date six. is a little bit indeterminate uh, based on mm-hmm. uh, immigration and a few other bits and pieces, but around that. Okay. And for most of that time, you were the head of growth. And only recently, the past few months, you have transitioned into the, the head of strategy role. Um, what I'd like to know is how are these roles different and how, how did you make that transition? Yeah, that's right. Well, when the company was really small, uh, the mandate that I had was please focus on whatever it is the company needs in order to grow. And when I say really mm-hmm. small, I mean just a handful of people, you know, three going on to 10 to 20 people, uh, at which point I didn't Does that really. Mean, Gaurav, sorry to interrupt you, but were you employee number four or? Um, part of the which, founding team. So one, okay. of, you know, one of the first few. <laughs> okay, um, cool. The size of company at that point meant that I didn't really have a team, right? So head of growth wasn't actually my title for at least a year or two uh, before the team started mm-hmm. to grow. It was really just, you know, Gaurav works on growth. All right, that person over there works on engineering, that person over there works on product, that kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So my, my, my focus was growth and it was whatever does the company need in order to grow. Um, most companies that are larger have a growth team and the growth team can be uh, either a, a sub-enclave of marketing, like growth marketing. It might be a spin-off of product, you know, growth product. Uh, some companies 
nest their entire product team under a chief growth officer. You know, very kind of growth centric companies will do that. But when you're a tiny company, you know, we didn't have any of those structures. It was literally do what you need in order to grow. So I would spend my time moving from problem to problem, unblocking and tackling the next challenge. Uh, to give you some examples, really early on, I did uh, a lot of the company's onboardings, you know, if a couple of hundred customer onboardings myself, really just to figure out if the product we were building was working. And then I would go back kind of in a product manager capacity and uh, relay all the feature requests and bugs and use cases and user stories back to the team. Uh, so it was somewhat, somewhat of a hybrid go-to-market product manager role, but that's what we needed in order to grow. There was a point when that wasn't what we needed. What we needed was more engineers. So I spent nine months just recruiting engineers uh, because in order to grow, what we needed was more uh, building bandwidth. Um, mm -hmm. And then as time went on, my focus shifted to, okay, what are, the, what are the blockers here? And that's where building out an onboarding team, building out uh, all the processes around our funnel, uh, growth and analytics, and then eventually building out marketing uh, became part of what I did. And you're right, uh, around seven or eight months ago, I uh, had a shift in my role. I actually had a baby and went on parental leave. So that was a really great point in time to you know, take a step back, actually divide my role up into a number of areas, split them out into more traditional functions like uh, marketing products, uh, customer facing teams. And so I've come back in this role of head of strategy, analytics and biz ops. Uh, now I partner with all of those teams to help uh, be a thought partner on the strategy, provide the analytics uh, and quantitative mm -hmm. firepower for what they need uh, and connect it to the operations, the day-to-day -day workflows and uh, processes. Mm -hmm. And what, what kind of a marketing team is there today that's superhuman? Yeah, the marketing team today, it's uh, about, I think, 15 or so people. Um, it's headed up by uh, Johnny, who's our head of marketing. And uh, broadly speaking, it's divided into, into sort of your typical marketing, um, I guess, sub-teams. You know, you've got product marketing, community, content, uh, performance marketing, uh, and then operations. So, mm -hmm. you know, each of those kind of sub-pillars focuses on different parts of uh, the marketing funnel. And uh, in some cases, goes all the way through to, uh, you know, post-customer product marketing mm -hmm. and, and deepening the relationship with customers. Excellent. Let's talk now about the product itself. Um, I think that you all are on a, on a mission to, to do one of the most audacious things in, in tech, which is to either to reinvent or to improve upon email, which, was, which is uh, really the, one of the dinosaurs in our, in our digital world. And many have come before you and tried that and have failed. So <laughs> what is it about superhuman that, that is going to guarantee that you all are going to succeed in this mission? Yeah, I think that uh, there's a couple of things that we're doing very differently to all the other companies that have tried and failed. So uh, the typical pattern of a company that is in the email space, a startup in particular, is they will build a product relatively quickly, relatively scrappily. Uh, they will generate a ton of marketing hype. So they'll get a lot of people interested in the, uh, you know, the great new email clients. They will launch that product to all those people, often prematurely. And because email and email clients are really complicated products with massive surface area and an exceptionally high expectation bar from the user, those products tend to churn out 90% of those customers within the first six months. 
the ones that stick around become you know champions and and evangelists but they are often drowned out when it comes to word of mouth by the number of people who are saying i tried it and it wasn't that great it was buggy or it didn't support that feature that i expected it to support uh, or something really critical went wrong like i lost a draft that i spent three hours working on or i sent an email and actually the client sent it seven times to my boss or someone really important. Uh, and we've seen this, we've seen this on Twitter, we've seen this with uh, other products. And uh, it's because the space is hard. Like I said, it's a massive product, it's a huge surface area. And in order to get it right, really requires dedication, you know, technical rigor, a serious amount of focus on the architecture and the product itself before you even think about getting your first customer on board. So that's what we did. We, we spent longer than most of the other companies building v1 of the products before getting people on board and we were exceptionally careful about how many people we were get, giving access to the product uh, early on we didn't launch it to our uh, massive wait list of people who are interested we slowly acquired customers and made sure that piece by piece we were addressing the issues and features that they were requesting and we were also filtering those prospects extremely heavily based on their product needs and saying no to a lot of people we were saying no if we realized that we didn't yet have all of the things that this customer would need in order to be successful. We would say, look, we'll get back to you. We're building lots of things and we know what you need now. So we'll get back to you once we've built that thing. I think a lot of the other companies have just assumed, come all, try it out, you know, let us know what you think. And then they just get yeah. swamped with all of the feedback. And so mm -hmm. if we look at the actual data, um, you know, there are a number of companies that have tried and they've either been acquired or they've shut down um you know mailbox was really popular uh, got acquired by dropbox and then dropbox mm -hmm. actually shut the product down uh, there are others in the industry like astro and accompli just to name a few uh, who also got acquired and or shut down and they all kind of followed a very similar pattern we were very aware of that pattern and we kept an eye on it and we decided to do something different i think the other thing i would mention is we made sure that every single customer is paying for Superhuman and they're paying relatively towards the top end of the market. Right, Superhuman is $30 a month, it's a dollar a day. Uh, through one lens, it's it's pretty inexpensive. You know, most people might spend a couple of dollars a day just on coffee, uh, but through another lens, compared to another product that is free, you might consider, well, why, why should I pay $30 a day for this product? And for us, you know, we're building a sustainable business. We want to make sure that every customer who comes on board really feels that value, really perceives it as valuable. But also in, in return, we are building a sustainable business around uh, our customers. Yeah, that, that's a great, that's a great um, overview. And I think one of the things that really shines, at least when I go through the website now, is that there's a major focus on speed as one of the killer unique selling propositions. Is that something that you all learned over the years of just constantly testing, iterating, and surveying, and getting that critical feedback? Because it seems like that is one of the critical features that finally got people to switch yeah. from whatever they were using. Am I correct? And are there other things that you discovered in those early days that really helped you put your finger on the real pain points of traditional email? Yeah, that's a really great question. So how we learned that is a really interesting story. When we were heads down building the first version of the product and didn't have anything to release you know me and my growth role i was like 
what do I do? <laughs> you know, I'm waiting for the engineers and, and, and co to really actually get something that I can, I can grow. So what I did was, uh, you know, I set up our marketing funnel and our, you know, our website, uh, our in lead capture, if you will, like email capture form. Uh, and well, obviously there was no products to give all the people who were signing up, um, but there were lots of people signing up. You know, we got to like 50,000 signups before we were even getting uh, a single paying customer on board. So it's like, what do we do with all those people? One of the things that I thought would be valuable was to implement like an auto email uh, from our CEO that asked some very simple questions. It's like, what annoys you about email today? And what are you most looking for in a new email product? Two really simple questions. Uh, and obviously the number of responses was phenomenal. And we had so much quality and richness in those answers. And we read through every single one. Right? Like we, we absorbed all of that information. Uh, what we learned was that a really, really big theme was speed, right? It was, it's too slow for me mm -hmm. to do my email. The product itself is slow. I take too much time. You know, lots of related topics around uh, this idea of speed. And we also picked up lots of other themes, um, in particular, the design uh, and the UX of other email products came up a lot. Uh, and then also features, you know, things that people would like in order to be able to do email more effectively. So our first version of Superhuman actually had a different tagline to the one it, it has today. It was blazingly fast, visually gorgeous email, right? And so we were trying to hit two things in one. We were trying to say it's fast and it's also looks really great. Hmm. The problem with that was we were splitting our focus and we were splitting the focus of our customers. Uh, you know, we, we thought we would be trying to capture multiple markets, you know, people interested in design, people interested in speed. Uh, but it really just split the team and, and the customer's focus up. And so we, at this point, you know, this is like a, a year in, we had enough customers that we were starting to get real customer feedback, not just this like market surveys uh, feedback. And mm -hmm. at that point, that's when we started to really analyze and look at the qualitative feedback those folks were, were giving us. You know, what we were asking them questions like, what is the benefit you receive from Superhuman? We were also asking mm -hmm. questions like, how disappointed would you be if Superhuman disappeared tomorrow? And so this is kind of the kernel mm -hmm. of the product market fit um, thesis that Rahul has, has written about on first round review. Mm -hmm. And we looked at those who said, I would be very disappointed if Superhuman were to go away. And then we looked at what are the benefits that those people experience? And speed was the top benefit. You know, that for us was mm -hmm. kind of like a, a, a trigger point of like, hey, actually, the, the single thing that is most valuable for the for the people for whom this is resonating the most with is speed. You know, we always knew that speed was important. We we had speed as a proposition built in from the very start. We had the 100 millisecond rule, uh, you know, as popularized by Paul Bukite, the uh, creator of Gmail. And so we always it was always there to begin with, but that research really helped us figure out, okay, this is the thing for us to zoom in on and focus in on. And so then we applied a framework that, again, comes from a first round review article. I'll have to look at the exact title, but it's uh, it's about market positioning. And it basically encourages startups to position their, what they're building in a single sentence. So, you know, superhuman is X for Y, you know, X is a product, Y is the audience. Uh, the benefit it gives you is Z. And basically you, you come out with your statement and we did that exercise and we zoomed in on just speed and everything else, mm -hmm. visually gorgeous, you know, the power features, 
all of those other things that we thought were important, they were also, they're still important, but they ladder up into speed, right? Like you move faster when you use something that is visually gorgeous. You move faster when you have power features, uh, power tools at your disposal, all of it goes back up to speed. And that's actually when we change the homepage to say mm -hmm. the world's fastest email experience. Uh, and then the benefit is you get through your email twice as fast as before. You know, we really just boiled things down to that one message. And, you know, to this day, that still continues to be a core theme of uh, what the product is and, and what benefit it gives you. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I was, I was reading the first round review um, in particular, asking that question to determine product market fit, which is um, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use the product? And I think that's, that's great. According to this article, um, there's about a 40%, uh, 40% benchmark. So, yeah. um, you, that was, that was the, the magic number. And, um, I'd like to now just pivot over to the onboarding journey itself, because it seems like you all are doing something non-traditional, not by non-traditional. I mean that the rest of the world of SaaS, I would say is moving towards product led growth mm -hmm. where you put, you put the product or you put a, some version, maybe a scaled down version of the product into the hands of as many people as possible, as quickly and easily as possible, and allow them to self-serve or to onboard themselves with a, with a, a low touch experience. And then you observe, and then you, you strategically go in and upsell people that exhibit high value behavior or whatever it may be, but you want to accelerate time to value um, by a low touch experience, a self-serve experience and letting people use the product. Yep. You all, on the other hand, seem to be zigging when, when others are zagging towards product-led growth. And, uh, and I, went through, I went through the onboarding experience and I want to tell you what, I, what surprised me most. Yeah. Um, the first is, and I'm going to compare this to the same, ex to the same onboarding experience that I did uh, right after with, with SaneBox. And I know that this is not apples and apples uh, competitor. I know right. that they're, they're really just a layer onto Gmail. Mm -hmm. um, but what I was expecting is I, I would be able to just really connect through my Gmail or my Outlook or my Apple Mail and then immediately start to use the product. But instead, you ask me with no navigation on the homepage, which I th I'm sure that's intentional. Um, the only thing that I was prompted to do, and I could almost do nothing else, was to enter my email and click get started. And then I was, <laughs> I was put into a type form. And the type form said, this is going to take you about six minutes. I actually got through it a lot faster. And these are the questions that surprised me most. Um, you asked me what year my computer was built. And um, <laughs> I want to ask you about that in particular. Um, yeah. Because you, you did ask me about what, what kind of computer. I said, I'm on a MacBook Pro. But then you asked me what year it was built. Why, why do you want to know that? And what do you infer from that <laughs> bit of data? It's a really good question. Um, before I answer that, I just want to just want to mention for the listeners uh, the first round review article that I was referencing that I needed to look the name up was is uh, positioning your startup is vital. Here's how to nail it, and it's a framework mm -hmm. from Ariel Jackson. I can send you the link after if you include it in the notes, for example. Sure, thanks. Um, why do we ask that question? Well, it goes back to a larger topic around why we have the survey in the first place, and it's what I mentioned earlier about making sure that. Uh, for this customer, the product is going to be the perfect fit. Like we mm -hmm. don't want to give you a bad experience. You know, it's not in our core values to to not be able to delight you, right? And so what we we've kind of systematically been through the industry of you know the email industry and, and really identified what are all the parameters 
okay, so there's a couple of key things. There's things like what mobile device you use, Android, uh, iOS, mm. or, or otherwise. Um, what operating system do you have on your desktop, Mac or Windows or Linux? And then what hardware do you run? I'll get into that in just a second. But there's other things too. You know, What features do you need? Are you someone who absolutely requires uh, Salesforce integration in your email? Do you need Grammarly? Right, so we ask those questions too, and, and you know we're very careful. Yeah, to plugins. Right, so we'll come I to noticed, that. Probably. I noticed that too. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do we ask about your the year your computer was built? This is getting pretty technical and a bit nerdy, but uh, mm-hmm. superhuman relies on certain technology to operate extremely quickly. We store your email locally, right? Like similar to the email client architecture of decades ago, right? It's right there on your laptop. That's a big part of why search, for example, is extremely fast. Compare that to other email clients where every time you run do something as basic as run a search, you have to wait for that request to go over to the internet, go to a server, come back with the results before you can decide what to do next. Or if you're in a low internet situation or even a fast internet situation, that's still like 500 milliseconds, maybe a couple of seconds before you can decide what to do. For us, that's not good mm-hmm. enough. We need it to be there in 100 milliseconds or less. Right. And so, okay, we have all of that information. It's, it's safely and securely uh, on, your, on your local device. Are you familiar with solid state hard drives and uh, you know, spinning, spinning disk hard drives? Uh, yeah, more or less. More yeah. or less. MacBook Pros, MacBooks from 2000, uh, around 2013 is when they were fully phased out, but somewhere between 2011, 2013, were transitioning from spinny disk hard drives to solid state. And then, of course, uh, Windows and other PCs have a vari- have had a variety of hard drives over the you know early 2010s. What we learned was that customers on spinning disk hard drives had the worst time with Superhuman because mm-hmm. all that data was being stored locally. But when running a search, you know you're basically asking the computer to spin the disk at a crazy speed and look for all that data, right? And it's stored mm-hmm. in a very hard to access way. Uh, and, and this is just a fundamental problem with the, you know, with the architecture of the hardware. There's a, there comes a certain point where we can't really software our way out of that. We're relying on mm-hmm. a solid state drive and the ability to really quickly grab your email mm-hmm. as part of the user experience. And so we ask what year your uh, computer is. And if you happen to write 2009, for example, we actually shoot you an email and we explain the challenge. And then we ask you, do you still want to proceed? Or do you have another laptop? Uh, because again, we don't want you to have a really bad experience. We're asking you to pay money after all. Uh, we therefore would expect to give you an amazing ex- experience and we want to apprehend uh, any disappointment uh, that might ensue for things that we know are going to be the case. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then when I got to the end, there, there was, of course, where did you hear from us is always interesting. Um, and then I came to a page, I had still not yet seen any pricing, but then I came to a page that said, okay, now we'd like to please create what I think what you call a reservation card, um, which is kind of interesting. It sounds exclusive and it it didn't even sound like I was really going to be let in yet, Um, but still no no pricing. And then I was asked to create a a reservation and and to put a credit card number down with a clear message that I'm not going to be charged and I would only be charged if uh, if I was ready to proceed. But still there, there was that field there asking for my credit card and I hadn't seen the price. I'm sure you all. That, I'm sure that's very intentional, and it's and it's been tested ad nauseum. But what kind of testing did you run that led you to the conclusion that that was the best uh, 
finalization of this onboarding experience. So it's interesting that you didn't see the price because it's uh, it's mentioned in the survey, but you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. how the survey said it would okay. take six minutes, but you did it faster than that. So I'm wondering if you just mm -hmm. skipped past that because it's more of a... I might, I might have missed it. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how I missed it, actually. Um, Question uh, two of the survey uh, indicates the price and just asks you to acknowledge it. There's no mm -hmm. data entry. So you might have just like been hitting okay. enter until you had to. Might have just sped through it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, couple of thoughts. So you mentioned, uh, you know, in your question, it's like, how did, how did we decide that's like the best flow? I, I will say very openly, you know, no flow is ever the best flow. It's a continual state of evolution mm -hmm. and, and progression. And so we're always looking for opportunities mm -hmm. to streamline, to make things more efficient, more effective. Uh, and we recognize as much as anyone, you know, where there's opportunities for us to improve things. Uh, that being said, we did have uh, a number of experiments and a number of tests around where to indicate price. Uh, we decided we, we learned that if you have price on the homepage, if it's front and center, uh, you lose a lot of that early interest, right? It just instantly turns people mm -hmm. off because they haven't yet really thought about what it would be like to save two hours mm -hmm. a day in email. Uh, it requires a little bit mm -hmm. of that leaning in and a little bit of, um, okay, I'm excited before we want to share the information mm -hmm. on price. Um, yeah, I so guess yeah. if you introduce if you introduce price too soon, you get the the user's mindset immediately into a value for money framework, yeah. as opposed to you, you might cut off some initial curiosity. Um, and I think that yeah, that's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And actually, um, two uh, mm -hmm. well-known companies and well-known products to go take a look at where they introduce price on their website flow. Tesla, go to the Tesla homepage. Mm -hmm. You do not see a price. You actually have to go into the specifications of each car and the price is listed as a specification. So it's like, okay. how quickly does the car go from zero to 60 miles an hour, whatever number of seconds, and the row underneath it, the same formatting, the mm -hmm. same font, price, whatever, $45,000. And it's just like, it's, it's, a, it's a footnote in this much more elaborate product page that is about two mm -hmm. or three clicks in. The other company that does this, I think really well, is Apple. You go to their website, it's like, do you want a MacBook, an iPad, an iPhone? You click an iPhone. You know, which iPhone do you want? The 11, 12, et cetera. You click the one. What color would you like? You click it. What number of gigabytes? And then only then, mm -hmm. right, seven or eight clicks in, uh, do you start to see a price uh, for, for the one that you've chosen? And so it's, you know, we looked at that and we thought, well, we want to create that similar excitement around the product and the experience before we start to get you thinking about cost. And so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, we decided to intentionally remove the price from all upstream sources. It's not just the homepage. When you're referred to Superhuman, we don't include the price in that message. Right, I was, I, was, I was actually looking for a pricing page like a traditional SaaS website would have and I uh, couldn't find yeah. one. And then I guess I somehow missed it in the, in the type form flow. Yeah, we decided to remove all those and to just have it mid to bottom funnel. You know, we need to be upfront and clear about the price at a certain point in the flow uh, so that you don't show up to the onboarding all of a sudden, and you're really surprised that there's going to be uh, an ask, but mm -hmm. it needs to be late enough such that we're not losing that mystery and excitement. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. When the call gets booked, can you walk me through how that goes? And, and actually, before we get there, I have a, a <laughs> one question to ask before. Everyone goes through the same flow, so I cannot get my hands on the product. I'm dying to get my hands on the product, but I can't. I need to schedule a reservation card. I'm guessing that requires a, a sales a sales force. Why is there not a, a low touch or a no touch 
classic product-led growth experience? Yeah, great question. All right, so there's a couple of pieces to this. One is the origin. You know, where did this come from? And the origin was as we were building the product and we needed to know if it was going to work, we were onboarding people manually. You know, it's the best way to understand your customers is to speak to them and to actually get them onto the product and see them using it. So like I mentioned, I did hundreds of those onboardings. Our CEO did. Uh, and then eventually we started to put together, I started to put together the early growth team, which included folks who were doing more and more of these customer onboardings. And then eventually we started to specialize and actually built an onboarding team uh, with onboarding specialists who really focus in on doing onboardings with customers. Uh, all throughout that process at every step of the way uh, has been a huge component of using the onboarding to make sure that we are seeing customers use the product, we're capturing any issues and bugs, you know, we're hearing feature requests and we're taking note of all of the above so that we can better serve the customer. You know, we write that down mm -hmm. so we can get back to those customers when we've improved the product. That's sort of strand number one. Strand number two uh, really relates to email as a, as a product, as a tool. People come to email with somewhere between five and 20 years of history and baggage. Mm. They come with preconceived notions of what it means to do email. They have their own workflows. They have their own habits and systems. Uh, unlike a new product, you know, that might be, I don't know, you're launching a wearable and no one has previously encountered it before. Mm. You know, you get to define what it is to use your products. We don't have that luxury with email. People have their own workflows. So mm -hmm. that's great. But we also have a preferred workflow in Superhuman. We recommend a way of doing email. We have systems and tools that we think are going to help each person. And so the onboarding really helps us evaluate and figure out what is this customer's system. You know, we, we ask questions about how you do email. And then we, as the uh, people who've spent a lot of time thinking about email, help you move from whatever system you're on to a system that we believe is going to be much better for you. For some customers, it's fine. They don't actually need an onboarding. They're already doing it the superhuman way. Uh, and then mm -hmm. we, we call those customers, you know, they're already nine out of 10 proficiency with email. We see the onboarding as an opportunity to get them to 10 out of 10. You know, those are the mm -hmm. customers who we're like, hey, do you know about this really niche shortcut that's going to save you like five seconds every hour? And then they get really excited about that because, you know, that's what someone mm -hmm. at that level of sophistication cares about. But you get customers coming in who are maybe four out of 10 proficiency with email. Like they dread it. They, you know, drop emails mm -hmm. from their colleagues. They, they really don't like going into it. And we use the onboarding to get them up to seven, eight, nine, mm -hmm. 10 out of 10. So we mm -hmm. coach and teach and we, we show them a different way. So that's the second strand. It's all about education. Okay. And you mentioned time to value earlier. You know, we get time to value down to half an hour in the onboarding. And what we see is that 40% mm -hmm. of our customers uh, achieve or they see inbox zero inside of that half an hour. And then over half of customers have seen Inbox Zero by the end of their first day. And that's the power of the onboarding, right? Um, I would say the third thing is about connection. It's just about the human touch. It's this idea that mm -hmm. uh, as we're a tiny startup, you know, we're growing. We want you as the customer to feel connected to us. And we want to have that relationship with each and every customer. And so doing the onboarding and having people be friendly and excited and you know, selling on the idea of of what the future could be, right? If you could save all this time, we create that rapport and that human connection. And what that does is it means that the customer knows someone at the company. They don't just you know, interact with this faceless uh, entity. Mm -hmm. 
they know someone, they spent time with someone, they even exchanged emails with them afterwards and connected with them in a deep and personal way. And so we're creating this, this huge web of connections across you know, our early customers here. So you combine all these things and we, we just kept getting such good feedback about the onboarding. People were like, that is a differentiator. That is the thing that meant that this was more valuable to me than any of the other email clients I had tried. And so it's like, well, let's keep doing it, right? Like we can find a way to scale this. And uh, I'm happy to talk more about that, but mm -hmm. that's a little bit about why we do it. I will okay. say that there is actually a, a, a secret path into the product uh, that doesn't require the onboarding, but it's a little bit of a secret between me and you. <laughs> okay, well, let's not, let's not give up that secret. That, that's interesting. Um, and I guess it sounds like, so the product is just, it's one price, it's $30 per month, it's a dollar a day um, per, per user. So also there, there's not a, there's not a free version. So you're, you're trying to get that commitment from right up front. Now, I guess that this very heavy, the heavy touch, I mean, you certainly, there's a cost associated with that yeah. um, building out a team of, uh, do you call them sales or what do you call these people that are doing the onboardings? Onboarding specialists. The onboarding specialists. So there's certainly a cost associated with that, and that is going to increase your customer acquisition cost. Yep. But then the benefit is, of course, of a greater lifetime value from lower churn rates. Yep. How much analysis have you done to weigh the pros and cons of bearing the higher CAC, but then having it be justified by a higher LTV with, with those lower churn rates? Yeah, a fair amount of analysis. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I will add, uh, we, we do have other price points for educators, students, charities, nonprofits. Uh, it's considerably cheaper, 66% um, discount, so $10 per um, okay. month instead. Uh, but yeah, $30 is the is the sort of list price. Um, yeah, so onboarding cost and lifetime value. Yeah, we've done we've done a decent amount of analysis on that. Um, you know, I can't I can't give you the exact numbers here, but suffice it to say mm -hmm. that there is a meaningful step up uh, from what we've seen from having the onboarding in lifetime retention as measured by lower month zero churn, lower month one churn, lower month two, three, four churn, uh, to the point where the lifetime value, you know, is, is sufficiently high that it makes sense for, at least for, you know, this phase of the company for us to have, uh, the onboarding. I'd also add that the cost of acquisition might seem like it's quite high, but actually is relatively small as a percentage of typical marketing budgets in SaaS. Right. The way that that works is when you have an onboarding that is half an hour uh, and you're asking customers to schedule using a tool like Calendly, you can actually do somewhere between eight and 10 or even 11 onboarding calls in a given day, which means that you can actually get up to around 40 in a given week. Uh, and so when you are doing that many calls and such a high number of those customers are not just retaining, right? We're not just talking about keeping them paying. They actually love mm -hmm. it, right? They're going on Twitter and talking about how great it is. Mm -hmm. The cost of acquisition becomes small because it's a relatively efficient process and there's the bump mm -hmm. to LTV. Uh, now, is that the be all and end all? Uh, you know, am I recommending that every company out there should go and do this? No, you know, I, I think that it would be myopic to say that one way is, is the only way. I actually like to use the analogy again to Apple in this regard. And I like to, to sort of point out the retail experience at Apple, in particular, the Genius Bar. 
you go in to Apple and if you don't know what you want, if you say, well, I think I want an iPad, they might actually ask you a couple of questions and they'll say, what you really need is a MacBook Air mm -hmm. and here's why. And they'll walk you through it. They'll handhold you. And they'll, they'll guide you towards the purchase. So Apple is bearing the cost of, of, you know, I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands of uh, retail store employees, genius bar members, educators, trainers, mm -hmm. et cetera. But they will add to the Apple experience. It's so different to the experience of another computer manufacturer or a technology company. You don't have that mm -hmm. from anyone other than Apple, but it's part of their experience. Yeah. But is it Apple's only experience? Well, absolutely not. You can go on their website, like I mentioned earlier, and just buy an iPhone, right? Like, you know, businesses are purchasing MacBooks by the dozen for their new employees without needing to go and talk to someone. So my recommendation is to think about what are all the different kinds of customers you have? What are their needs? Uh, and setting up onboarding flows and systems that are going to work for those different customers. And you're going to have customers who will need handholding and help and, you know, workflow migration, et cetera. You're going to have customers who are impatient and just want to get going. Mm -hmm. They want to make a purchase as soon as possible. And how do you find the right pathway for those customers? You know, I, I think Apple's done a really good job. And I think that more companies should be thinking about this. Mm -hmm. Have you ever internally debated just having a free trial period? We have. We actually have been trialing, having a free trial period. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned earlier in the, in the show that the people who have come before you and failed or maybe have succeeded, but they've been acquired and, and the brands are no longer around traditionally because they, they gave too complex of a product to people too soon. People were overwhelmed and the churn rate was massive. I think you mentioned, was it 90% churn rate in the first, uh, was it first 90 days or what was that yeah, statistic? I mean, it's, it's the typical churn rate, the churn curve of any yeah. kind of product that's given out for free. It's like you're losing 90% of those initial customers, you know, inside of that first month. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like a retention yeah. curve that massively Super drops steep. off. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. As opposed to one that you want to see, which, you know, for single player SaaS, industry leading would be that you still have 60% of your users at 12 months paying you, right? That's what you want okay. to get to. And so we're talking very different uh, profiles, shapes of uh, retention here. Yeah. Uh, is that where you all are? I don't, if, if you're yeah. able to say that? Okay. Um, that's for, sing for, for single player, yeah. And uh, we haven't even got to the part that's when you start to sell to teams and those teams naturally mm -hmm. expand and grow. You know, we see, yeah. we see those cohorts actually experience negative churn, right? Where the, the number of seats acquired over a 12 month period more than balances the number of seats that might be lost. Right, right. So then you're still, you're still experiencing net, uh, net growth in that case. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. uh, positive uh, retention. Yeah. Um, and now I'd like to shift over to the acquisition marketing itself. And you mentioned that despite having to layer on the, the human cost of, of the onboarding specialists, you still are, are able to have a, a relatively competitive CAC. And why is that? Is that because you're getting a lot of organic conversions coming in that are non-paid or is yeah. there something else that uh, it's a great question. alleviate that, that CAC? Mm -hmm. It's a really, really good question. Um, this is where marketing channel strategy comes in. Uh, and and there's, there's a framework that I like to use, which is, you know, thinking about, Thinking about what your long-term channels are, these are the ones that are, in many ways, you know, evergreen. You can bet the company on them, uh, and 
you know, there's there's another first round review article uh, that talks about this. What what are the three channels that companies can really bet on, especially in SaaS? Uh, it really boils down to content, virality, and performance marketing or paid media. Mm. Right? These are the three that you could really build a you know a five year strategy around. Um, mm-hmm. There are other channels, things like PR, things like uh, you know influencer marketing or affiliates, sometimes considered parts of paid, sometimes considered separate. Um, mm-hmm. But the lifetime on those channels might be more like eighteen to thirty six months before you hit some kind of a ceiling, some kind of a cap, right? There's only so much PR a typical company can generate uh, before you start to run out of of room to generate more. So the way that we think about it at Superhuman is what is our portfolio? You know, what are are our series of channels? And so we do have investments in all of the above uh, channels that I mentioned. The short-term wins, right? The PR strategy, Mm -hmm. uh, getting out there in in the media, uh, which is kind of like the Mm short-term wins. But we also have our longer term bets right like our content play our virality and of course paid media in particular for superhuman what helps us blend down cac in a big way is organic and referral right organic mm-hmm. comes from a, a variety of uh up channels right uh, upstream sources word of mouth is particularly big um content uh mm-hmm. you know mentions we might have had in in, in the media and then virality is what we do to encourage our really happy user base to get lots of other people using Superhuman. We have a referrals program. We have an invites program. If you're part of a team, uh, we have incentives around some of those programs, you know, symmetric incentives mm-hmm. to get people to refer and, and to be referred. And so there's lots and lots of different techniques and, and methods here, all of which help to uh, acquire more volume and blend mm-hmm. down CAC so that when you look at the company mm-hmm. overall, uh, the cost of acquisition is is very much manageable. Yeah. I want to ask about particularly about virality and then I want to move over to the just to the paid acquisition. But virality mm-hmm. is very interesting here too because I think that some of the best viral SaaS products that I've seen are really baking it into the product itself. The brand that I'm thinking about is one that we use every day, which is Fireflies. And that is a transcription bot. It records and transcribes calls, it joins calls automatically. And the experience is that you are you know, more or less obligated to announce at the beginning of a call that you are recording the call and you say, meet Fred, he's our transcription bot. And then the conversation usually goes, oh, well, that's cool. What, what, which one are you using or what's that called and how does that right. work? And then I find myself selling the product at the beginning of the call and it's just naturally built into the product. Have you all thought of ways or are you doing things that allow a user who receives an email that might've been sent from superhuman to kind of see it in a different way and have a little bit of a, a little bit of a sense that something <laughs> is different here and better. And maybe I should look into it without, without the email sender, your superhuman customer sending that email, having to actually say, I don't know, ch- check out my referral link or, uh, or here's an invite. Is there some way to make it more uh, actually part of the product itself? Yeah. We do actually have something like that. We have, instead of sent via iPhone at the bottom of an email signature, we have sent via Superhuman. Mm -hmm. uh, Okay. um, I I was going to guess that, yeah. (laughs) It's definitely part of it. Sent via Superhuman. Mm -hmm. It's it's obviously a setting. You can turn it off. You can turn it on. Uh, It's. Mm -hmm. But that's on by default? It's on by default. Yes. It's on by default. And Mm -hmm. it does account for a reasonable percentage of our you know, what we consider organic traffic and then, and then subsequently our signups that 
come from what Click we throughs on that on those links in the email in the email footers. Uh -huh. Exactly, and so that's naturally uh, viral, right? Like you're emailing people and you're you're advertising the product. I mean, this goes back to Hotmail, right? Like back in the '90s, yeah, um, that early kind of signature. Um, we thought a lot about other ways to do this. We thought, well, what if there was a superhuman font? What if email sent from superhuman appeared blue, like iMessages, mm -hmm. instead of green, <laughs> like regular text? Yeah. Um, we, yeah. we talked. You know, we talked a lot about all of these things. We we ultimately decided that look, at the end of the day, we want to keep it simple, right? Email is a complicated mm -hmm. space. People use different clients, different devices. We don't want to put ourselves out there in a way that is fundamentally editing or altering the content of our users because that is so precious mm -hmm. to them that we, yeah. we don't want to change the font, the you know, background color, anything like that. What we do is mm -hmm. we just keep it very simple. You know, it's literally three words uh, and you can turn it off if you want and it's at the very bottom of an email. Uh, mm -hmm. Keeping it simple like that uh, has a, a sort of, I guess, a mystery and a, and a charm in its own way. Uh, I will mention that Microsoft uh, Outlook does have a specific font, right? Like I think we've all seen it's kind of like a serif font. You know, when you get an email from someone who's using Outlook, it's like, oh, it's the, yeah. you know, that's the Outlook font. It's also got a specific kind of blue. Uh, and we don't, mm -hmm. we, we don't do that. In fact, we're actually very careful to, to remove styles and strip styles uh, in Superhuman so that your email just looks clean, plain, and isn't going to have some kind of audit trail or, or history of, of where the words may have come from. Uh, it's mm -hmm. just very simple. Yeah. And I suppose there is natural scalability as more emails are sent through the platform, then I would assume the click-through rates in those footers remain relatively stable over time. So as the the, as the sheer volume of emails sent through Superhuman increases, you can count on that virality to scale according to your email send growth for the most part. Yep. And that's that's a nice uh, that's a nice channel to be able to rely on, as you said, for not for eighteen months, but for five plus years. Yep. Um, I let's think talk what, about paid, and there's there's one other. I'm sorry. I, I was going to I was going to add one thing, which is that uh, for a channel like that, there is a a steady state, right? There is a natural kind of level mm -hmm. that you can count on. You can forecast it out and just say, well, we're probably going to get that forever. What yeah. you really want if you're in charge of marketing or growth at a startup is to think about inflecting that curve upwards. What can you layer on top of that, uh, either by, by changing that particular mechanism or just by stacking other mechanisms on top to change the overall shape of the curve upwards. Uh, and so while it's true that we have that you know, footer, we also have a ton of other mechanisms to encourage referrals. Uh, like I mentioned, the incentive system, we've baked it into the product to make it really easy to just one click refer people uh, we encourage referrals as part of the onboarding. Uh, we actually incentivize our onboarding specialists based on whether the customers they have onboarded referred, right? So there's all kinds of mechanisms that, that really layer, you know, step-by-step step deliberately on top of that, um, that baseline load. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage anyone who's thinking about virality, virality in particular as a, as a channel, to think about the, the layer cake of mechanisms, the, the sort of incrementals that you can gain when you when you kind of add these mm -hmm. things uh, together. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Let's shift over to paid acquisition. This is one of my favorites always. Um, <clears throat> we're, we're moving into an era of, at least with Google ads, we're moving into the era of value-based bidding, where in a post third-party cookie world, Google is begging us for our first-party data. 
Do you all have a plan to use the answers in that type form survey to either to score or to predict lifetime value or approximate lifetime value in those moments so that you can send that back for to Google for value-based bidding at the, at the time of the auction? I would say that our approach is going to be a lot more simple than that. <laughs> I would say okay. that, you know, there's a, there's a higher level question, which, which starts to present itself once you've sufficiently mm-hmm. built the product that you're no longer product qualifying uh, customers in, in, in quite the same way, which is, do you even need mm-hmm. the survey, right? Like do we, do we, do we need this, this moment of friction in the uh, onboarding process? Yeah. And so for us, you know, a big question that we're asking ourselves right now is what would it look like to remove that survey? Acknowledging it still has a lot of value, you know, it still primes expectations, it still gathers uh, relevant information for the onboarding, and it filters out customers that we're still not quite ready for, the 2009, um, you know, laptops like we talked about earlier. But instead of necessarily optimizing that data and using that in a certain way, uh, I think the bigger question is, is removal of friction and how do we get to the point where we're, you know, like I said, incrementally layering uh, mm-hmm. opportunities to scale. Okay. Um, in terms of, in terms of leaning into, you know, usage of data and uh, how that, how that's manifest in, in page advertising, um, you know, it's really clear where the industry is going on this, right? Like the industry wants to preserve and protect the privacy of, of customers and rightly so. Right. And so I would, encourage anyone who's thinking about strategies around paid to be really mindful and, and, and respectful first and foremost of users and their privacy. Secondly, to acknowledge where the industry is headed and to make sure that strategies are going to be built around kind of the new norm. Uh, and, and thirdly, to within the constraints of, of the systems and tools that exist, yeah, to look for those opportunities to respectfully, but to um, meaningfully acquire customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is certainly a new world, and there's another concept called zero-party data, which is something that is the data that you are that the users are voluntarily answering in a, a, an experience like your Typeform experience, um, because the benefit for them is is a gr- greater customization of the product yep. and a better a better overall experience and a better determination of fit, and I think that users are a lot of marketers see that initially as adding friction. And they think, well, the longer our onboarding survey, the, the more the more questions we ask or screens we take people through, we're adding friction, and that's gonna that's gonna hurt our conversion rates. But I think if it's done the right way, users will actually appreciate that the the experience is being customized for them, and they'll volunteer that information mm-hmm. because now they value their privacy and they're much more aware of of, of the privacy topic. And I think that's that's going to be very interesting for for you all and other SaaS companies to try to figure out where is that fine line or the the, the healthy balance between asking people questions that can really help us to differentiate them in terms of their predictive value, and also convince them that this their answers this this extra time and extra answers that they're providing will result in a better experience for them and a better fit of the product, and I, right. and I think that's that's where we're headed. And then, of course, when it comes to just purely the efficiency of the spend, if if those answers and those zero that zero party data, which is the volunteer the volunteered data of the user during that onboarding experience prior to a, a trial start or prior prior to uh, you know getting onboarded into the product, if if uh, if that data can be scored and and then shared with let's say Google Ads, 
Google can can actually then bid much more smartly to value instead of bidding on a blanket target CPA, which is how right. 99% of SaaS right now is is doing paid paid acquisition. So right. um, I think that's that's a really interesting future. Yeah. Um, but but what you said was that maybe removing the entire onboarding the Typeform experience either enriching data from there's so many enrichment tools out there. They could probably tell you what kind of laptop they're on. They could probably figure out what company uh, based on the IP address, what company they're at. And then therefore, you know, you can figure out their email address. You don't even have to ask that either. So certainly it's something worth, worth testing. If you can just simply um, just get them, get them right into that conversation with one of your onboarding specialists uh, without having to ask that. I would also I'd also paint the picture between and the difference between a, a B2C acquisition motion and a B2B acquisition motion. Uh, in particular, yeah. you know, we've been talking a lot in this conversation about B2C and what it takes when you're really tiny but trying to grow intentionally uh, to acquire healthy B2C customers. But when you get to B2B, you know, there are well-established norms and, and, and benchmarks in the industry, mm-hmm. right? Like it's very common to have a, a, a lead form or some kind of a sign-up form that filters out product qualification, then you get your automa- automated qualifi- uh, qualified leads, then your marketing qualified leads, and then you pass over mm-hmm. to sales. So you have your sales opportunities that move through your CRM all the way to a closed uh, deal, right? And, and, and that flow, that whole system is very well set up, right? So that's where you do want to gather that zero party mm-hmm. data to figure out, hey, should we send this person to the B2C flow or should we have uh, an account executive reach out and really, you know, figure out what the customer's buying here. Um, so I would encourage more thought goes into the the use of that data for for a flow like that. You know, it's really clear what's happening with the information there. Uh, and then over time, when you're ready, friction removal in the B2C world, keep the friction mm-hmm. where it's helpful, right? Keep the friction where at the end of the day, it's in the customer's best interest. Uh, and using the Apple analogy, you know, making sure that the people or the friction or whatever steps as is, is, uh, remain in the process are still there at the end of the day, serving the user. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's great advice. And it, it is very important, I think, to differentiate these different flows and motions from B2B versus B2C, because right. I agree with you that B2B, B2B prospects do anticipate and expect a certain experience and they will tolerate certain things that consumers won't tolerate and vice versa. Consumers may be willing to give up information to get a better product recommendation that maybe the B2B use cases simply wouldn't do. So it is, uh, it is very specific. And, um, and I think it is all about, you know, all about testing in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Gaurav, this has been fantastic. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think would benefit our audience? Hmm. What's a question you normally ask that benefits your audience? <laughs> well, what I'm trying to get at here is that, was there something that you wanted me to ask that I didn't ask that you still feel like you, you wanted to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the we talked about it, but we didn't talk about it directly. Um, one really important concept, I think, at the at the heart of a lot of what we talked about is is the value system that is driving all of these actions. Uh, and so, I think a question is, why? You know, why do you do all of these things? You know, what, what is the reason for the onboarding? What is the reason for this survey? 
um, mm -hmm. etc. And at least for us here at Superhuman, we've defined a core value, our topmost core value, to be create delight. Right? Like at the end of the day, we we reconcile everything back to whether or not we're creating delight for our customers through the thing that we're doing. And if we can if we can convince ourselves, if we can see it in the data, if we can if we can ask the customer and ask them how they feel and, and get validation that yes, we're in fact creating delight. It's counterintuitive. Maybe it was a bit more friction. Uh, maybe it's you know different to what everyone else is doing. But if we can see that we're creating delight, that is uh, at the end of the day, that's all our values north star. And so yeah. the 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 thing that I believe is incumbent on all startups is to figure out their values, in particular the ones that relate to their customers. Why are they there uh, as a as a startup, and how are they approaching work? So I think figuring out your values and then tying your actions to those values is incredibly important. And honestly, they, they help you navigate the forest when you've got so many different decisions to make, mm -hmm. um, like all the ones we talked about yeah. today. Gaurav, that, that is fantastic advice. I couldn't agree with you more. And I do believe that a lot of uh, marketers and, and just everyone in our space, at times they lose sight of that. And, and uh, I think that... Um, Ultimately, they maybe even under, underestimate that their buyers are also looking for for shared values. They're looking for brands that have that share their values because there are a lot of there are a lot of good products out there and good solutions out there. But the ones the people that are going to remain loyal, I think, especially now that a lot of buyers tend to be younger millennials, um, they are they are also personally value driven and they want to associate themselves. And, they, and the products that they use with their values and they want to see that those same values that they share are reflected back. And, and I think that uh, it's easy to lose sight of that, but I'm very happy that you, that you made that point. And I think that's a great, a great place to, to wrap it up. Awesome. Uh, where, where can people find you online, Gaurav? Yeah, I'm on Twitter uh, at Gaurav401. I'm on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. Gora. Uh, you know, you can, go to the superhuman website, go to the jobs page, scroll down, find my face and click on it. <laughs> There's th three awesome. options to reach me. <laughs> Great. Well, good luck in your new, in your new role. And, and it sounds like you all are still at the beginning of an exciting journey, an extremely audacious mission uh, to succeed where others have failed in the past. And it sounds like you all have, have started to crack the code and you're doing things differently and congratulations on the success so far. Awesome. Thank you so much, Paris. This has been great. Yeah, thank you too. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.